Let's turn to Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We'll also be referring, hopefully, to Hebrews chapter 2, where there's a tremendous correlation to this passage. Romans 8, 29, Hebrews 2, beginning with 8b, second half of the verse through 10. This is also 30. Today we're dealing with the subject of predestination. Please recall that we are collecting food for a food drive for the, I see it's already coming in very generously and plentifully. Salvation Army food drive is going to go throughout the month. And if you want to know the list of the items that's out there on the information table, another opportunity to be generous. This is one way the gospel continues in this region, is through the generosity of the people of God that reveals the grace of God. This morning's message, and I've been on the subject for three or four messages at least, is promeity. Promeity, if I were to write a systematic theology, it would begin with... And that's actually pronounced E, promeity. It would begin with three words, deity, speaking of the essence of God, aseity, which is the self-existence of God, and promeity, which is God for us, God for his creation. He can't be other than for all of his creation. He's demonstrated this in many different ways. We've studied promeity in prayer, in the intimacy of prayer. The Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groans that cannot be uttered as he groans with us as we groan with creation. We have seen that promeity has to do with God being for us, not only in the intimacy of prayer, but in the vastness and immensity of creation, that the creation was designed in all of its magnitude the lord stretched out this universe in all of its magnitude with us in mind with earth being a habitable planet in his mind and earth is the place where the cross was planted and from which jesus rose from the dead promeity god for us demonstrated not only in the small intimacy of prayer but in the vast immensity of the cosmos of all creation We've also seen his promeity in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 in history and in providence, providential promeity. And today, well, after we looked very carefully into incarnational promeity, God demonstrating his being for us by the incarnation of the eternal word. Today and last Wednesday, incidentally, we have that in print out on the information table a prelude to this doctrine of predestination from God's view, not man's view, not Calvin's view, not Luther's view, not the Pope's view, not the Pentecostal, charismatic, fundamentalist, or Tetelestai church's view, but God's view, predestinational promeity, how God shows himself to be for us. And that, again, that's the culminative aspect of Romans. Romans is flanked. Romans 8.31 is flanked by 217 verses on the left and 217 on the right. And Romans 8.31 says God is for us, for us. And that means, as we've seen in the span of the horizon of redemption, for all of creation, for all of humanity. And I want you to see this very clearly because this reaches a kind of culmination in Romans And this is really a kind of a high point or peak of our teaching in Romans, these next few messages and these last few. In the parable of the sheep and goats, in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, we have been considering this recently because unstable and unskilled exegetes use it as a proof for eternal hell. And it's really an evil to do that. But in the parable of the sheep and goats, as Jesus speaks it, He is revealing primarily his solidarity or his identification with the disfranchised and the rejected in society at that time and at all times. He calls them 
very carefully we want to consider this, the least of these, my brethren, my siblings, my brothers. Matthew twenty five forty. I want that phrase to sink in because it's a phrase that's going to come up again here. The firstborn of many brothers or his siblings, and here many siblings called into glory by the Lord. We asked the question Wednesday, does many equal all in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10? Calls many sons into glory. We know that many equals all if you compare Mark 10.45 with 1 Timothy 2.6. Jesus said the Son of Man is not come to be ministered to, but to, to minister, to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in 1 Timothy 2.6, an interpretive phrase, he gave his life as a ransom for all. There is one mediator between God and man, or all humankind is what that means. One person stands as a mediator between God and mankind, and that's the man Christ Jesus, who, says the scripture, gave himself as a ransom for all. So many, in Mark 10.45, equals all, according to 1 Timothy 2.6. We've seen many equal all in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, where the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ results in the justification of all. And then verse 19 says, he gives righteousness or makes many righteous, and there many equals all. So I ask the question, does many equal all in Hebrews 2.10, where all is intended as being included in this little group called many sons in glory. A question maybe a little more close to being answered today. But in the parable, and I'm introducing it in a strange way, whenever one does two or four these, the least of my brothers, Jesus said, they will have done it two or four, Jesus So it's that and not a, quote, double predestination leading to a double outcome of the last judgment. That is the last thing that Matthew 25 is teaching. And we've been refuting that point by point. That's not my main point today, though. A double predestination leading to a double outcome of the last judgment is one of the deepest and most profoundly evil heresies that's ever crept into the church And we're going to bring it down today and in the future, and we have been in the past. So that, the least of these, my brothers, is one of the eminent points of this parable, not a parable leading to double predestination and a double outcome of judgment. Matthew 25, it must be remembered, is an extension of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. and began in Matthew 24, 3 in which he expounded upon events that were to occur, in his own words, in this generation, before this generation expires, before this generation into whom I'm speaking right now, Jesus said, all these things will be brought to pass, which includes the Matthew 25 elements, as well as all of the cosmic catastrophic language that describes the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 30, or A.D. 70, rather. Jesus does not say that no one else is his brother. He simply says, these are the least of these, my brothers. They are considered least by the dominant culture of the time. These are not all his brothers, just the least of these. Jesus does not say that no one else is his brother. His solidarity, or we could say his identification, is not exclusively with the victims in society, not exclusively. It is very much with them, but not exclusively with them. His solidarity is with all of humankind. To him, all lives matter so much that he gave his own life to ransom us all. So his solidarity is with all of humankind. In fact, his solidarity is with all of created reality, which In creating all of reality, he called it good and very good when humankind finished the creation. In Christ, says the scripture, all will be made alive, and all means all. 
When Jesus died, he died one for all, and all died. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses to them, not charging them, not counting them, not imputing them. The trespasses of perpetrators, and we call them perps and vics to use police language. There's perpetrators or criminals. There's the victims, perps and vics. There's a perp and vic in every one of us. There is a perpetrator and a victim in every one of us because of the Adamic ontology. Victims sometimes become perpetrators and worse perpetrators than the perpetrators ever were. So the point here is that trespasses in 2 Corinthians 5.19 of perpetrators and persecutors were not and are not charged to the perpetrators and the persecutors. Just ask Paul. Just as the sins of the victims are not imputed to the victims. Victims can be sinful. They can be bitter, hateful, unforgiving, reactionary, vengeful. So... The trespasses of perpetrators and persecutors are not charged to the persecutors and perpetrators, just as the sins of victims are not imputed to the victims. Moreover, we could say from Romans eight nineteen to 23, that all of creation is not waiting in vain for its emancipation, even its transfiguration. And so this moves us once again into our present doctrine of divine promeity, Considered under the rubric or the title of predestination. What a big topic, predestination. What a hot topic. But I want to clarify some things about it this morning. I want to consider this by exegesis. That's a careful look at every word in Romans 8, 29, and 30, which we won't finish today. An exposition is intended to expose the interpretation or the understanding of that verse. By comparing this passage with a couple of others will show that predestination has nothing to do whatsoever with God preordaining the eternal salvation of some and the eternal punishment of others, other human beings. And it will show that God's plan has nothing to do with the destruction or the un- of the universe or even a part of it, but its glorious transformation, according to the phrase, the restoration of all things. Apocatastasios panton is how it reads in Acts 3.21. If all are to be made alive in Christ, and the Bible declares it emphatically and affirms it certainly with assurance, then we must at least consider that many brothers, or we'll call them siblings because, of course, both genders are included in this, if we are to be made, all are to be made alive, then we must at least consider an affirmative answer to does many equal all of humanity, as deployed both by Paul in Romans 8.29. He is the firstborn of many siblings, being Christ, and the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews in Hebrews 2.10. Does the many human beings or many sons called into glory equal all of humanity over the course of all of time? We can only ask that question now because of the track we've been on for several years, at least since 2010, as I mentioned last week. So then we at least have to consider that when Jesus, God's son, and that's his identity, may be the firstborn of many siblings that his many siblings may be all of humanity, and that conformity into the image of the Son is the predetermined destiny of all of humanity. Big words, you say. Lofty theological concept, you say. Let's hammer it out. God said to Jeremiah, I'll make my word a hammer, and the hearts of people the stones that it breaks to pieces. He also said, I'll make the people wood and your words fire. Paul also said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly or weak or fragile, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. One of the big strongholds that has to be pulled down without mercy is the evil doctrine of a double predestination of human beings. 
resulting in a double outcome of divine judgment in which many are damned for an eternal hell of divine, divinely imp imparted torture of human beings. That is not only a blasphemous doctrine, but it is a heretical doctrine, and it has never been the intention of the scriptures to bring such a thing forth. Such a thing was not intended ever by God, as he makes clear from Jeremiah 7, 31. Now, and following. So then, here's the point. If all things, and that tapanta we studied last week, everything without exception in all of its times, all beings, including all rational beings, angelic and human, are to be summed up in Christ. And before you say angelic isn't included there, then I have to tell you that Colossians 2.10 says he is the head of principalities and powers. The head of the body of Christ is also the head over all things in Colossians 1.18 and Ephesians 1.22, and that includes principalities and powers as well as people. So, once again, if all things are to be summed up in Christ as Ephesians 1.10 emphatically states they are, then the last judgment must not be seen as the last thing, but as the second to last thing that leads to the new creation of all things for participation in Christ's life and God's uncreated life. Aristotle was famous for syllogisms, and famous he's also for a saying, a dictum, or a maxim, it goes like this, that which is first in resolve is always last in execution. God's first resolve or his first resolution is the last in execution. What was his first resolution? To judge mankind or to make everything reconciled in Christ? The mystery of his will, his first resolve, according to Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, which will be his last in execution is to sum up all things in Christ. The last thing, then, isn't some last judgment in which sheep go here and goats go here. That's not at all intended. The last thing executed is the first thing resolved by God. And his first resolution in Ephesians 1.10 is to summarize everything in Christ Jesus. And that's a reconciling action of God. And so, according to Aristotle's famous dictum, that which is first in resolve is always last in execution. Then the last judgment must not be seen as the last thing predicted in the Scripture, but the second to the last thing, not the ultimate, but the penultimate thing. And it leads to the new creation of all things for participation in God's uncreated life. Look, I'm making all things new in Revelation 21 comes after the fire which is God purifying everything in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. So the last thing is not the last judgment in which some are supposedly consigned to eternal fire and eternal punishment. The last thing is the execu execution of God's first resolve called the mystery of his will, the first resolve or the first resolution of his will, which is to sum up everything in Christ, a word that's going to be prominent in our next increment of study, anakephaliosis, the summary of everything under the headship of Christ in Ephesians 1.10. So I would say that this means Jesus is the last word, not hell. And then I would say Jesus is the first and the last. And therefore, both those who are the first in society and those who are the last in society are in him. Jesus, whose name means salvation. There's some things I'm going to say today that I'm not going to repeat, but they have a testimony in Scripture that would mean hundreds of verses. So I hope you'll listen, or these will be in print also. Both those who are first in society, the first will be last and the last will be first, and those who are the last are in him, who is the first and the last. Jesus whose name means salvation, or more particularly, Yehoshua, Yahweh who saves, Yahweh who saves, is a declaration of divine promity. What he does is saves. What God does is justify. What Jesus did is die. 
And is there a price that was paid in his death, contrary to some fluffy universalists today? Yes, a price was paid in his death, and you have been bought by an inestimable price, and you're not your own. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, you've been bought with a price, so stop being the slaves of men, whether it's men being the slaves of the Adamic ontology of their wives or wives being slaves of the Adamic ontology of their husbands, or people being the slaves of the Adamic ontology of a warped news media, or people being the slaves of a distorted and warped generation that's curved inside instead of curved toward God and directed toward God in worship. Jesus, whose name means salvation, Yahweh saves, is God's last word. God, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. So, the last word is not judgment, even though Jesus is the judge who saves, and who saves by judgment, by receiving the judgment for all. In fact, the last judgment happens to be the culmination of God's saving act, of universal rectifying grace, also known as God's righteousness. God's righteousness is his rectifying grace. Now, here's a question for you and for those outside these walls, for this generation, for our generation X, Y, and Z coming up, for the generations to follow and for our own generation, Jesus posed the question to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. He said to them, what do you think of Christ? What do you think of Christ? Who is he? It's a question posed not only to Jesus' disciples at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, 15. It is a question put to all of us in the present time and to all the world right now, especially those who consider themselves to be Christians. To the Pharisees, Jesus put this question, what do you think of Christ? And he added this tag, whose son is he? In Matthew 22, 42, 45, make that. What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? And you can give the right answer, the dogmatic answer, the doctrinal answer, the scriptural answer. Peter did, but it wasn't just scriptural. It was the Father's apocalypse. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonas. His flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, apocalyptically reveal this to you, irresistibly reveal this to you. But my Father in heaven, blessed are you. So, but here's the question for today, with a little bit of a qualification. If he is the Son of God, then he is the Son who will reign until God places all his enemies beneath his feet and until all things are summed up in him. If he's God's Son, then he's the one who subjects himself to the Father, according to 1 Corinthians 15.24 and 15.27 and 28. He is the Son who the very action of the Son is to subject himself to the Father along with all the things that are summed up in him so that God will be all and in all. If he's God's Son, then he's the one in 1 Corinthians 15.24 to 28 who submits himself to the Father along with all things that have been summed up in him so that God can be all in all. Did you hear that? So if you're talking to me about the Son of God, you talking to me? If you're talking to me about the Son of God, is this the Son of God you're talking about, or is it somebody else? Is it the Son of Joseph whose cross was a semi-failure? If Jesus of Nazareth is God's son, then he is the Christ in whom God wills all things to be summed up salvifically, savingly, reconcilingly, Ephesians 1.10. 
if he is God's son, as you might agree, then he is the one whom God raised from the dead in Romans 1.4, and in whom all are to be made alive in 1 Corinthians 15.22, the same all who were died in Adam. If he is God's son, then he is the one into whose glorious image all of humanity, he didn't say, let us make some people in, the Im- in our own image. He said, let's make humanity in toto into our image and likeness. Will that be realized? If he is God's son, then he is the one into whose glorious image all of humanity are predestined to be conformed. If he is God's son, and if all are to be made alive in him, then he is the firstborn of a band of many brothers, a band of many siblings that include all of humankind. Say, that doesn't sound familiar to me. It shouldn't. What sounds familiar to you is the false doctrine of predestination. So I would say this to those who say, oh, he's the Christ, the Son of God. I'd say, but maybe to you, he's, he's not. Maybe he's just Joseph's son. Like many say, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's son or the stonemason's son or the, you know, the guy with his plaque up on his business there? Isn't that his son? And if he's just Joseph's son whose death on Calvary was an abysmal failure, maybe. Because he came to save the world. You may say, oh no, oh no, I'm a Christian. Which automatically means I'm a good person. Oof. Oh no, I would not say a failure because he was raised from the dead and as a result of that, many will be saved. Many. A whole lot of people. Well, to that I'll say this. You say he is a failure as a result of his death and resurrection if the whole world isn't saved through him because God sent his son into the world so that the world would be saved through him. So you are saying he was a failure. If my mission is to go rescue ten people, and I say, I come back and say, mission accomplished, I got six of them. The mission isn't accomplished. For four people at least, it's a dismal failure. So I'll ask the twofold question. What do you think of Christ, whose son is he? Now you may echo Peter's emphatic answer. I think most of you would, if not all of you. Even in the overflow rooms, because God's hope overflows even out to those outer regions, the outer darkness. Remember, I used to call downstairs Tartarus at the farm, so just kidding, you guys out there. See ya. I see ya. Wake up! You can echo with Peter. I'm sure you have. Blessed are you, then. If you can say with Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God to Jesus, then blessed are you, truly. You're among those called the especially those who believe God's the savior of all of humanity, but especially those that believe. So blessed are you because you're of that especially those that believe category and especially those that believe without seeing category. Blessed are those who believe. Jesus said to Thomas, you've seen and believed. That's where most people are going to end up, seeing and believing. He doesn't say that doesn't count because you saw, so you're damned. He just said, seeing, you've believed. You've believed, your belief is just as valid when you saw. But blessed are those who haven't seen the resurrected Christ up close and personal, the invitation to put their hand in the hole in his side and their finger in the nail scars in his hand. Blessed are you. 
But I would ask further, is Jesus the Christ in whom all things will be summed up according to the mystery of God's will? Is that who you're talking about? Is Jesus the Christ in whom all things will be summed up according to the mystery of God's will? His first resolve, his first resolution, even before creation, he resolved all creation to be in Christ. Is that the Christ you're talking about? And is Jesus the Son of God, the one who subjects himself and all of created reality with him to God so that God will be all in all? Is that the Jesus you're talking about? It's the biblical one. If you're saying he's God's son, if you can answer with an emphatic yes that that's the son you're thinking of, then I won't say blessed are you. You know what I'll say? Very blessed are you. Because you have confessed the truth that the spirit of God is speaking to the church and to the world today. And pastors are catching it. And people are catching it. And prayer warriors and attentive people who listen for the still small voice of the Holy Spirit are catching it. And they're catching hell from those who don't like it. They're being excommunicated, disfranchised, slandered. But it's the way it's always been, isn't it? He that is born of the flesh always mocks the one born of the Spirit. And I want to mention something else. The universal saving significance of Jesus Christ is not a train to get on board, but a truth to be emphatically believed. So don't say, oh, my friend is on board. Why? It's not a train that you hop. It's a truth, an indisputable truth that's to be believed. I could say, do you believe this, that Jesus' saving significance is not only unconditional, but universal. Some of you would say, yes, I believe it. Others would say, mm, help my unbelief. Others would say, no, I won't. And if, as a pastor friend of mine says, no, I don't believe it, nor will I ever. Now that puts down a gauntlet, not to me, but to the Lord. That's like Mick Jagger saying, you'll never make a saint of me. Well, God says, oh, let me take you up on that. I wonder if he still feels like that after having a heart valve replacement. I don't know. Maybe he does. I don't know. But you want to say you'll never make a saint out of me, then lay that gauntlet down to God and see who wins that little battle. For the truth of Jesus Christ's universally saving significance is not a train to board, but a truth it's true whether you believe it or not, a truth to be believed and to have total confidence in. Once you have confidence in that, you cannot love all of humankind unless you have confidence in the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ because love believes all things. It hopes all things. And if you look at the human race without hoping for all, you don't love the whole human race. In fact, you're kind of glad that some are going to hell. In fact, some people don't like the fact that God doesn't consign anyone to an eternal hell because they got somebody in mind that they want to be there. Somebody who hurt them. Me. So let's hammer it out on the anvil of exegesis. I always like to do that because there's a lot of fluffy universalism today. You know what they say? They don't believe in hell, but some of them believe that there is a hell, but it's not forever. And they say after many, many ages, God will convince people to believe. What comfort is that? After many ages, eventually this and that will happen. We need Operation Epsilon fitted with the lenses of what God sees in the cross of Christ. Everything didn't happen in A.D. 70. Everything happened in A.D. 30 to be manifested in the parousia, the coming of Christ. 
Let's hammer it out. Romans 8, look at it, it says, Because those whom God knew in advance, those whom God knew in advance, is this little Greek word, us or hus, because it's a hard breathing. It means it would be like this if we looked at it in the English transliteration. Hus, that means those. Those whom God knew in advance. And that's a, what we call a relative pronoun. I'm only going to show you a little bit of this because this is, if it can't be hammered out on the anvil of exegesis, looking at every word, then we can, you can argue against it. But if it can be hammered out on the anvil of exegesis, then argument against it becomes much more difficult. Because those whom God knew in advance. Now again, whose is a relative pronoun. It goes back to, it means it relates to a pronoun in Romans 8.28. 8.29, whose relates to a pronoun in verse 28. And it's tois, those. So a relative pronoun agrees in gender and number with those who love God, tois, those who are loved by God. In other words, those who love God are the people for whom all things, God is working together in all things to bring about the ultimate good, which is God being all in all. And so those is a relative pronoun agreeing with those in Romans 8.28 who are the called according to God's purpose. So we've shown that those, that's tois, T-O-I-S, they both relate to each other, hus and tois. That means this relates to this. It's the same group of people. Hus is a relative pronoun agreeing in gender and number with those who love God and with those who are called according to God's purpose. Now, we've shown that those who love God, listen carefully to this, because I have never heard this, you may have, exegeted in this way. Those who love God is ultimately all of human, all human beings, all of humanity in all of its times. Seven reasons for this. One, we're hammering it out. Let's do an Aristotelian syllogism. Aristotle was also famous for syllogisms. A, but B, C. So here's, here's a syllogism. It actually became accidental. I, no, I never wrote a syllogism until I saw this, and then I said, hey, that's a syllogism. It's this. Those who love God must first be those whom God loves. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. So there is no one who loves God unless God loves them first. And let me ask you this question. Who are those whom God does not love? Now, follow this, though, because it goes into a logic here. I'm not doing a facile case where you just say, well, it says somewhere in the Bible by somebody that this is true. Those who love God must first be those whom God loves. 1 John 4, 10, and 19. Here's the second part of the syllogism, a three-part syllogism. But God loves all humankind. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12. God loved the world also. John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible. Ergo, which means therefore, the lovers of God are all of humankind. Now imagine if Romans 8:28 meant God is working together, Father, Son, and Spirit, in all things, the whole cosmos and all of history, to bring about the ultimate good for everybody who will ultimately be the lovers of God. That's what I'm telling you it is saying. Second point, just to add to it, the self-gift of God. God's own self-gift. He gave us four self-gifts. That's coming out in our theology. The self-gift of God's own love has to be universal. It has to be of necessity. First, because God loves all of humankind. And secondly, because he promises that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. When the spirit is poured out on flesh, the effect is always the love of God being poured out in the heart. The effect is always taking out the stony heart and putting in a heart of flesh. So that's Joel 2.28. 
Ezekiel 36, 26, on all of humanity. And therefore, again, the self-gift of God's own love has to be universal because God loves all of humankind and because he will pour his spirit out on all humanity, resulting in the pouring out of the love of God and the love for God in everybody's hearts. Third, furthermore, hus, as a relative pronoun, agrees in number and gender with tois in Romans 8, 28, who are the called according to God's purpose. Purpose is prothesin. What is God's purpose? Well, his purpose, according to Ephesians 1.11, is to sum up everything in Christ in 1.10 in all of its times. So those who are called according to the purpose are those who are called in order to be in God's purpose, which is to be summed up in Christ Jesus. Paul is the most emphatic universalist. He puts universalists today to shame because he's a confident one, not a hopeful one. His universalism is a verbum, not a phantasm. His universalism doesn't involve a redux of purgatory where, oh, yeah, there's a hell, but it's just for a little while, and, and it's not really forever. But, and then some will even say, but for ages and ages, it's going to take God ages upon ages to make some people believe. But that makes believing be the condition for salvation. And the human will be the human condition or the condition for salvation. The condition for salvation is the human will of Jesus Christ who became obedient to the Father's command to save all human beings. So if you make faith the condition, you're already screwed up because then you've got people out in eternity after death with God still pressuring them to believe because believing is the condition. And that makes human will the big deal rather than God's saving will. You say, I don't get it yet. Well, you won't. I, I hope I got some time. I'm just a kid. I got a few more years to just hammer this out. So the third point God's purpose has to do in 2 Timothy 1.9 with his grace. I'm still on the third point. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God's grace was given to us before time was measured by this thing called aeonos, ages. Before time was even, time is a creation. Time was created like creation was created. So, God is going to redeem all time as well as all history as well as all his creation in all of its times. So 2 Timothy 1.9 says grace was given to us before time was measured in ages. So what do I get from that? Well, I get that this grace has to be for all of humankind because there's no condition to be met by humans in history for the reception of a grace that was granted before history. Where's the condition? Grace, by its very definition, means conditionless. Fourth point. See, if you put all these points together, it gets to be kind of a fuller argument. God's purpose is in keeping with him who works everything in agreement with his determined resolution of his will. That's a mouthful in Ephesians 1.11. That passage has never been fully exegeted to my satisfaction. And that's one of the goals I have in front of me. There'll be as, at least as much labor going into Ephesians 1, 9 to 11 as went into Romans. God's purpose is in keeping with him, himself, who works everything in agreement with the determined resolution of his will, which is to salvifically sum up everything in Christ. His foreknown. Guess who is foreknown? Christ. 1 Peter 1, 20. Guess who is the elect one? Christ. 1 Peter 2.4, Luke 9.35, Luke 23.35, Isaiah 42.1 for a few more. Who is the elect one? Jesus Christ. If one died for all, then all died. If one rose, then he rose for the justification of all. How about Ephesians 3.11? Haven't dealt with that much lately. That purpose, prothesin, is of the ages. It's a purpose called the purpose of the ages. Or we could even say it's an eternal purpose. You know why? Because it's God's purpose. And that purpose is as eternal as God's own being. God for us is as old as God. In other words, the ancient of days. So this purpose is called eternal 
Because, in Ephesians 3.11, and angels are even listening to this message according to 3.10, because it's through the church, the principalities and powers are learning of their own redemption, even the fallen ones. But they don't like it, because it takes the whole merit out of their hands. So people are a lot like fallen angels. Oh, how people hate. A guy recently said, people hate it when you mess with their hells. I'll say this. People will give you hell when you mess with their merit. Now, I know that it's some people's will that I go to hell, for example. The reason I know that is because they've said to me personally, go to hell. (laughs) Okay. So then. And after preaching this message for 10 years, I almost I'm tempted to say, been there, done that, even got the T-shirt. So then, it is the purpose that is eternal because it is as eternal as God and as the eternal word who has become flesh. And it is a purpose which he has made and realized in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 3.11. Six, there is no human being whom God has not known in advance. Therefore, as being in Christ, there is no human being that God has not foreknown as being in Christ. In Christ, all be made alive. Don't you think God sees that or is even present to that reality already? So he doesn't see any human being as foreknown outside of Christ. There is no human being whom God has not known in advance as being in Christ Jesus. Because when one, capital O-N-E, meaning Christ Jesus, died for all, then all died. And in Christ, all will be, or we could say in God's view, have been made alive. 2 Corinthians 5.14, 1 Corinthians 15.22. I'm leaving enough room here for you to do your own thinking on this, as always. Verse 7, as many as God knew in advance, this goes into 830, as many as God knew in advance, that same number without diminution or deletion, without a single deletion, that same number without diminution or deletion, without lessening the number or without deleting a single human being, He also called to belong to Jesus Christ. As many as he foreknew, those he called. Now, calling, what does calling have to do with you if God is the one who calls into existence things that don't exist? God called me, a non-existent entity, into existence. Did I have to give him permission to do that as a non-existent? I'm going to give you permission to call me out of nothing into something, Lord. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Or do I have to give him permission to raise me from the dead that I have in dead? I'm dead in trespasses and sins. I'm dead in my sins. God made me alive in Christ. Did I have to give him permission? Was my will involved? No. Was God's will involved? Yes. When Jesus was obedient to the death of the cross, to whom was he obedient? The Father. And what was the Father's will and command? That all would be saved in 1 Timothy 2.4. So what was Jesus obeying when he went to the cross and paid such a horrible price that we can't even begin to relate to it? God's saving will. That's love. And my battle is just as much against fluffy universalism much of which grew out of the Herbert Armstrong movement. But they don't admit it when they write their books. So then. See, so I'm not, there's no camp. I'm not in a camp yet. It's it's still outside every single stinking camp. Seventh point, as many as God knew in advance, that same number, according to verse 30, that's without a single deletion. He's also called to belong to Jesus Christ or called into being as a new creation in him. But he also goes on to say, as many as he called without diminution or a single deletion, he also justified. What? Rectified, set right. If he reconciled the world to himself, that means he also sets right those to whom he reconciles. 
So as many as God knew in advance is the same number as those he called, and as many as he called, he also justified. And as many as he justified, he also glorified. Yikes. So look at verse 829 again. Because those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Who are those whom he foreknew? Those who love God. Who are those who love God? Those whom God loves, whom he will pour out on the spirit on them so that they love God. Who are the lovers of God? All human beings. Who are the called according to God's purpose? All those who, according to God's purpose, will be summed up in Christ, which is all. I'm not playing. I'm not manipulating these verses. Preachers that use it for a double outcome of judgment are manipulating this scripture, and their time is up. Time's up. Let's start a time's up movement. And then other preachers that get it, they can say, me too. Never mind. Now, does many mean all here? He would be, so that he would be the firstborn among many Adelphoi, born ones, siblings. I'll ask the question again, does many mean all here? As it most certainly does by a comparison of Romans 5, 18 to 19, as it certainly does from Mark 10, 45, Matthew 20, 28, 1 Timothy 2, 6, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Does it mean all? To answer this, let's do a comparative analysis of Romans 8, 29 with Hebrews 2. Now let's turn there in closing, Hebrews 2, 8. Look at it, look at it, Hebrews 2, 8. Second half. We've already been here. We're here again. Now, the writer writes, as things are. What are as things are? Things the way they are. Read. Watch the news. Here's their assignment. Watch the news for an hour today. Local, regional, national. You watch it on MSNBC or CNN or CNBC or the Communist Broadcasting Network or the Atheist Broadcasting Network or any of those networks. Watch it for an hour, and you'll see that not everything is yet under his feet. You don't see everything yet under his feet. We don't see it. God does. We don't. But we do. So it says here, as things are, we do not yet see all things. Tapanta. Everything without exception subordinated to him. I love this verse, verse 9, but we do see the one who was assigned a position lower than angels for a short time. There's his incarnation. Namely, Jesus, who, through the suffering of death, was crowned with glory and honor, who, by the grace of God, tasted death in behalf of, the word is huper here, all, Pantos, all without a single deletion, all without any diminution. He tasted death for, God is for us all. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him. I'm studying this in Lonergan's book on redemption, in which he has about 400 verses, so it's going to take me an afternoon at least. For it was fitting to him, that's God the Father, for whom are all things, tapanta, and through whom are all things, tapanta, in leading many sons to glory, many sons to glory, does many equal all there, to make the prince of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, here's a few questions I'm asking. If Jesus tasted death, and death is the wages of sin, according to Romans 6.23, if Jesus tasted death, and death is the wages of sin, for all, by the grace of God, then why does anyone have to taste of death? Much less eternal death. And hell for a little while is just as bad of a doctrine as hell forever. If Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for all, and he did, it says it right here, then who are the many sons whom he leads to glory? If he tasted death for all, then who are the many? 
sons, he leads to glory. Are we dealing here with the same thing as Mark 10.45? I came to give my life as a ransom for many, and did he mean all, according to 1 Timothy 2.6? So, and then who are the many sons whom he leads to glory? Whom he calls my brothers, my brothers, my siblings. Not the least of them, not the most of them, just all of them. My brothers. Who became Jesus' brother when Jesus became flesh? Even more importantly, I'll ask this question. Who are excluded from the many sons he leads to glory? Who do you exclude? If you compare Romans 8.30, as many as God foreknew, he called, rectified, glorified. That's God's viewpoint. Is God's grace unconditional? If it isn't, God's grace is something else. Well, it has to be if by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. I'm going to taste death for everyone who I foresee as making a decision to believe and invite me into their heart. The rest, we torture forever in an eternal torture chamber with tortures that make Hitler look like a Boy Scout. Let's be that. No. Is God's grace universal? Well, first of all, is it unconditional? It has to be, if by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone without exception. I think it's unconditional. Otherwise, God is not just. Now listen, is God's grace universal then? Well, I say, I say, I'm taking responsibility for this. It has to be universal if it is unconditional. Because if it's unconditional, then does God say, well, I unconditionally save you by grace, but I don't unconditionally save you by grace. That's what Theodore Beza and Franciscus Gomerus taught, who were students of Calvin. That's what they taught. And I'll prove it as we wind down to a close here. So, if God's grace is not unconditional or universal, God is not just. You want to make an argument for his justice? Then make it there. Otherwise, God is not love. Otherwise, God is not good to all, like Jesus said he, was, that he is. He does good to those that are evil and to the righteous. He does pours rain out, you know, the whole sun. Psalm 145, 9b, God is good to everyone. No, he is not. He damns some of them to eternal hell. Who said? Let's just say who sponsored that doctrine. Hmm, could it be Satan, 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 Satan? <laughs> now listen, you are saying all these negative things about God God, if you say that his grace is not universal, and if you say that the justifying and glorifying impact of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is limited to a portion of humanity and a mere part of God's creation. That's what you're saying. I'm taking the gloves off now. You're saying that God is whimsical and not wise. That he's partial and not impartial. That God is hateful and not love. That he's harmful and not benevolent. If you subscribe to that which Moltmann rightly called this terrible doctrine, a doctrine of double predestination that results in double outcome of judgment by which some are granted access to eternal salvation and eternal joy, while others are consigned to conscious endless torture. Now listen carefully as I close, because this is tabulated in doctrinal statements. The doctrine was conceived by representatives of Calvinist orthodoxy. Their names were Theodore Beza, B-E-Z-A, and Franciscus Gomerus. Shazam. G-O-M-A-R-U-S. I'm terrible on pronunciation, so I'm always Googling how to pronounce stuff, and they said Gomerus. But Google's right about, what, one out of three times? But anyways, they put it into the thing called the Canons of Dort, 
D-O-R-T, in 1618. It's in print. It was later upheld by the Leyden Synopsis of 1628. This is their words, Calvinist Orthodox theologians. Quote, before the creation of the world, God resolved to elect the one human being in Christ, but to reject others because of their sins. In order to reveal in the one vessel his fathomless grace, in the others his righteous wrath, both vessels serve the glorification of God. Man, that's an ugly doctrine. Peter called it damnable. Because even the, do- even the false doctrine preachers, you know what Peter said about them? They are authors of damnable heresies and even deny the Lord that bought them. Second <laughs> Peter 2, 1 and 2. I like Karl Barth's words a little better. In the most famous thesis, thesis 33, CD 2-2, Christian or Church Dogmatics, volume 2, section 2, thesis 33. He said this, and I concur although I'll take it a little further. He says, quote, the election of grace is the eternal beginning of all the ways and works of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God. Now, you'll notice this other thing they wrote in Calvinist Orthodoxy never mentions the name Jesus Christ. He's not important to them. In Jesus Christ, God in his free grace determines himself for sinful man and sinful man for himself. He therefore takes upon himself the rejection of man with all its consequences and elects man to participation in his own glory. And the way they wrote back then, Swiss and German theologians, when they said man, they meant humanity, humankind. My own reply is this. I looked at Biza and Gomerus. And I became Sergeant Carter. And here's, what, here's how my statement, here's my revised statement of Gomerus and Biza. I say this, this is my statement. Before the creation of the world, God resolved to sum up all things, including all of humanity in all of its times, in Christ. There's verses for that, like Ephesians 1.10. In summing up all things in Christ, this is my, my little statement goes on. In summing up all things in Christ, God foreknew Jesus Christ as his elect one, 1 Peter 1.20, 1 Peter 2.4, and predestined all of humanity to conformity with his image, Genesis 1.26, thus electing all of humankind to participate in the glory of God, which is Christ. This is the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, who is the image of God in whom all will be made alive. How about that? Council of Kensington. So here's my final punch in the face of that old terrible doctrine. On this account, which is the solemn testimony of the scriptures. Isaiah 42.1, Luke 9.35, Luke 23.35, Ephesians 1.9-11, 1 Peter 1.20, 1 Corinthians 15.22, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, 2 Corinthians 5.19-21, to name a few. A double predestination by which some are predestined to heaven and some to hell was overcome in Jesus Christ, who became sin for us all so that we all would be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. By this account, you might call it the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the heart and center of the doctrine of predestination. Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised is the heart and center of the doctrine of predestination. For if one died for all, and he did, then all died. And if one was raised for all, then all will be made alive in that one. And in God's view, already have been. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our sins and raised up for our justification. That's an answer to Romans 1, 
where wisdom of Solomon and a lot of the Jewish Christian viewpoint, which is also reflected in Scripture to be rebuked by Paul, that God gave over these people, gave them over, gave them over, and his wrath gave them over. Here Paul replies to that and says, God gave his son over. And he does it again in Romans 8.32. He didn't spare his son, but freely gave him over for us all. Our justification, according to Romans 5.18, our justification in Romans 4.25, according to Romans 5.18, is the justification of all. As many as God justifies, all in 5.18, he also glorifies. If we take Romans 8.30 seriously, no, just, that's if you take Romans 8.30 seriously. In fact, if we take the aorist tenses seriously and look by Operation Epsilon, which I introduced at the beginning of 2019, Operation Epsilon simply means seeing as God sees. Those whom he foreknew and called are even now justified and glorified. And here's theology. God is omnipresent after all, and therefore present to your future. God is present to a time and a place where everything is all right. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to use the weapons of warfare which are mighty through your strength and through your power. For we are fragile human beings, and as preachers we are fragile, and men, and we are men of the flesh. We have like passions as the prophets who had many failings. We have many failings. But the word that we proclaim is mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And one of those strongholds, Father, is this terrible doctrine, which has been allowed to fester in the church for far too long. May your word and the power of the sword of the spirit cut this doctrine down. May the demolition of the power of your word, the demolition strength, Bring down this high fortification that's an insult to your grace, to your kindness, to your love, to your justice, to your omnipresence, and to your power. I ask this in Jesus' name.